Well, uh, please, uh, specifically, uh, as you're praying for Chris and I, pray uh, for our trip. We've decided to uh, to drive, and uh, that because uh, we realized we could take uh, a few more essential things if we did that, most specifically uh, our espresso machine. So <laughs> that's actually what sealed the deal. See? <laughs> She brought it up, and uh, it started with, we can take our bikes, and, uh, and, uh, and then it was the espresso machine. I said, we're, we're driving. So please uh, pray for us. Um, it's going to be a long trip to get out there to San Diego. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to mention uh, about our time uh, while we're gone. Again, many of you, most of you know that I'm going out there to... Uh, Oh, God willing, finish the book. So please pray for me uh, in that regard. Um, I told some of you that I feel like that was the uh, not a very wise decision on my part when I said I would do it. So um, uh, it is uh, very labor intensive, at least it is for me. So uh, I, I do covet your prayers in that way. Uh, I ask that you be good while I'm gone, please be good. <laughs> I'll be gone for the entire month, so we leave on January 1, and we will be back on February uh, 1. Uh, during that time, if you have anything, if you have needs, uh, as Chris said, I, I want to know those things, Chris meaning Chris Gross. Uh, if you do have needs, though, I'm going to ask that you, instead of contacting me, contact my wife, contact Chris, and then she can um, determine those things that I need to uh, be involved in and uh, those things that can be handled by uh, Pastor Tim uh, during that time. I'm going to do my very best to, uh, to not be distracted with other things so I can get this done. So uh, during that time, if you'll just make sure to, uh, to contact Chris. So this will be... Uh, the last you'll hear from me for a little while. Um, and uh, what I want to talk about, you'll see the handout says, Answering the Fool. I am very tired today. I would assume you're probably very tired too. So uh, I wanted to uh, talk about something that uh, might be of more interest to all of us. Not that God's words are uh, not uh, interesting, but there are topics, there are subjects that I would assume are more interesting, and I think that uh, what we're going to talk about today is uh, one of those. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that you do give us this time, and even if we are tired, we look forward to coming uh, because we know that this is what we've been created for. Uh, we've been created uh, to be a people who, uh, through the way that we live our lives, are living lives that bring glory to your name, and we know that to do that. We need to be educated from your word. We need to spend time in your house with your people. We need the blessing that comes from that time. Not only because your presence is with us here, but from even the things we receive in the table, the cleansing each week that comes from that table. Father, I pray now as we enter into that educational portion of our time that, that you would again use it to equip us Father, give us the strength also that we need uh, to do that, to uh, listen. I pray also for 
my own abilities, Lord, that you give me what I need to preach and to do it clearly and correctly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you need a handout, please raise your hand. Sorry, I, for, I forgot to mention that. Does anyone need a handout? Okay, all good. Uh, well, then if you would, direct your eyes to the top of that handout there. Because God's wisdom has always been countercultural, against the culture, God's wisdom has always been that. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 is one place where we see mention of that. Because that is the case, the veracity of the church's message has always required she possess the ability to refute the folly raised by the culture and its fools. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 talk about not answering a fool according to his folly, but rather answering a fool according to what his folly deserves. And so we need to know how to do that, to be, as uh, Titus 1.9 says, to be people who can not only defend what it is that we believe from God's word and to show that to be reasonable, uh, but also to refute those who contradict it. And uh, I've given to you uh, five examples of what I believe to be foolish things that are said by people uh, today that we need to know uh, how to refute. Uh, we need to know how to uh, give back to the fool what his folly deserves. And so, uh, the first of these, there are many interpretations. And you've probably uh, heard some or all of these at one time or another from others. Uh, this is one of the excuses that uh, people will use as it relates to Christianity or the Bible, they'll say, well, you know, there's many interpretations, and uh, so we can't be uh, confident that what we believe is uh, actually uh, correct, that it's true, that it's right, because there's, uh, there's just so many uh, different ways to interpret the Bible. It's unclear. The Bible is uh, confusing rather than clear. And uh, that's something that uh, has been around for a very long time, going even back to uh, biblical times, people uh, speaking this way. As a matter of fact, in Second Peter, we're told that this is what the false teachers do. They, they twist the scripture in this way, and uh, they do it unto their own destruction. What else we're told in the scripture is that the scripture is just the opposite of that. The scripture is not unclear. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, earliest doctrines believed by the church is what is known as the doctrine of perspicuity. And that doctrine teaches that the Bible is clear because the Bible itself, God's word, teaches again just that, that it is clear and can be understood so much so that we are without excuse. It is just that clear. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is uh, one such text. You know that text. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 and following. Here we uh, see not only um, reference to the clarity of Scripture, we might uh, call this the, the intellectual piece or 
uh, that we have the intellectual ability to understand it, but also uh, in these verses we find what we might call uh, the moral ability aspect, meaning that not only can we uh, understand what it is that God says, uh, but we have the moral ability, the faculties uh, to do what he says, to obey it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, for this commandment, God says that I command you today is not too hard for you. It is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And there you have really both of these things being picked up. The idea of that it's in heaven or it's somehow under the earth means that it is, it's either too lofty or it's too mysterious. We would do it, but we just can't understand what's being said. Children use this excuse, do they not? I don't understand, mom or dad, what, what, what it is you want me to do. That's why I'm not, uh, I'm not obeying you, because I, I don't understand. And God says, as it relates to what he says, what he commands to do, that's never the case. It is not too hard intellectually. It is not too hard morally. It is not too hard for you. Don't make the excuse that it's, Again, too lofty, in the heavens, or under the earth, that it is too mysterious. I, I, I can't understand it, or I can't go to it, uh, in the sea or beyond the sea. And literally, that idea beyond the sea is literally in or under the sea, under the earth. Don't say that, God says. The word is instead, verse 14, very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that, notice, you can do it in your mouth, in your heart. Both the intellectual ability and the moral ability is there. Yes, there may be many interpretations out there. Everyone has the right to their opinion. Not everyone, however, has the right to the truth or the right to be correct. There is but one right interpretation. One saving understanding of God's word. And God says that that understanding is not too hard. Lots of people will of course uh, stand there uh, on judgment day. And they will uh, make that kind of uh, defense in their own uh, case or their own stead, uh, but it will be rejected. It will be rejected because of what we've just read. It is not too hard. You can do it. Jesus, in speaking uh, with the Pharisees, as a matter of fact, not just the Pharisees, but uh, the entirety of Israel or the majority of Israel who uh, he knew would eventually uh, betray him and call for his death, Luke chapter 12. Uh, he addresses this, uh, this issue in Matthew's gospel. It, uh, it, it, 
makes mention only of the uh, Pharisees. Matthew 16 is the parallel account to uh, what we have here in Luke 12. Luke 12. Here we're told that Jesus spoke not only to the Pharisees, but uh, to all the people, to the crowds. Luke 12, verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, it's this uh, intellectual uh, piece. He's saying you, 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 you have the ability, you have the, uh, the wherewithal, the competency to uh, perform what we would call deductive reasoning when it comes to uh, determining the weather. He says you can look out and uh, based on where the clouds are coming from, uh, you know what the weather is going to be like or uh, the direction that the wind is blowing. And you can plan according to those things. And the point that Jesus is making is that uh, the same is true as it relates to God's word. Yet in their case, they were uh, making the excuse, oh, we, we don't know. Remember, one of the things that they kept asking for in Jesus' day was a sign. Oh, we, we really don't understand what you're saying, but maybe if you do a sign or something, maybe if you uh, give us something, then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll understand. Jesus says, you know. And the thing that betrays you uh, is uh, how you use that same ability with other things. Hence the reason he says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the earth and sky. And Jesus is saying that, that same ability, that same level of competency, that same intellectual ability uh, can be used to interpret or understand God's word, and yet you play the game of we don't understand. In the very next verses, he goes into uh, the moral component, verses 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Again, as I said, he's dealing now with the, the, the moral component. And the point then that Jesus is making here is, is uh, don't play the game, right? The judge is already, as uh, James says, standing at the door. Stop playing the game. Now is the time to make things right. Before you get there, before the judge. Now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to, to make it right, to do it right. To stop playing the moral games with God. Again, uh, those excuses won't fly. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses uh, 15 and 16. You know the text. Uh, there it talks about uh, the Word of God and uh, what, it is, uh, uh, what it is useful for. The first thing we're told uh, 
is in relation to uh, Timothy. From childhood you have, verse 15, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The next thing he says is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's useful also for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, a text that you're familiar with, but uh, here's the question as it relates to what we're talking about now. If God's word is so unclear, then how is it possible that Paul can say so many things about God's word and its ability? If God's word is uh, so confusing, and again, that's uh, what people are getting at when they say, oh, so many interpretations, right? Who knows? If that's the case, then uh, how is it that Paul again can say uh, from these scriptures, the sacred writings, which by the way refers to the Old Testament, that they're able to make you wise for salvation? How is that possible if they're so unclear? How can Paul say that? Again, uh, profitable for teaching. I can't do that if it's unclear, can I? For reproof, for correction, really? It seems a little arrogant if uh, I can't understand really what they're saying. I mean, if I don't really understand what they're saying, how can I say to you that what you believe or what you think they say is wrong? Isn't that what I'm doing if I'm correcting you? How do I do that if they, they, they can't be understood? Again, how is it that... Uh, I can be trained in righteousness or equipped for every good work if what they say is so unclear. First Timothy chapter 4, as part of uh, Paul's pastoral mandate to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, how, if the scriptures are so unclear, how is it that Timothy can ever have any hope of doing that? And notice, Paul presses again the issue this way. Persist in doing this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and hearers. So he makes both Timothy's salvation as well as those who listen to him, their salvation dependent on that. Timothy's ability to keep a close watch on the teaching. How do I do that if it's so unclear? How do I do that? In all of our time, <clears throat> 20 plus years now, uh, I have never, we have never experienced ever a exegetical or theological problem in this church, ever. That's never been the case. What do I mean by that? No one's ever uh, come and said, uh, I don't understand where you're getting this particular interpretation. Uh, I think it says this, and uh, we had to meet for a Jude call meeting over it because somebody thought something uh, different, and uh, we, we ended up in gridlock or, or, or something like that. That's never happened. That's never happened. So we have a hundred people here. Why has that never happened? If the scripture is so unclear, why has that never happened? 
Never has that been the case. We've had problems in the church, but every single time those problems have turned out to be moral problems. Now sometimes, uh, to be fair, uh, those people who were under or had moral problems, uh, sometimes they masked those problems as though they were intellectual problems. In other words, they said things like, I don't understand. But at the end of the day, it became very clear that it wasn't I don't understand, it's I don't want to do what I understand. Going back to the children, that's a, a lot of times what they're really saying, right, mom and dad? Reading between the lines. I don't understand. No, 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 you, you do understand, you just don't want to do what you understand. Proverbs uh, 24, Proverbs 24, 12, another text that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. <clears throat> 24, 12, if you say, behold, we did not know this. If you say that, then understand this, does not he... Who weighs the heart, perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? I'd say that's pretty clear. What is the author saying here? Well, he's saying, uh, don't use that excuse before God. You know, there's that old saying, you know, we can fool uh, some of the people most of the time or most of the people some of the time, but you can never fool God any of the time. And uh, that's really the point, I think, here. Don't play God like you play others. Don't play God like you play others. Don't play the dumb card, right? You're not going to do the rope-a-dope with God. Oh, I didn't know. And the author's giving you the heads up there, right? When you say that, you need to understand. He weighs the heart. He perceives. He knows what's inside. The one who keeps watch over your soul, he knows that you know. He knows that it's clear. He knows that the reason you're not doing it is not because you don't understand. It's because you don't like his laws. You suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Hence the reason in Romans 1, Paul can say that God is very, very pissed off. And that's putting it lightly. The word there is orge, from which we get orgy from. Which is a, a term that refers to sexual activity in our day and age, but to, the term itself just means unbridled passion. And this is the kind of anger that God has Towards humanity, we're told that. Paul tells us that in Romans 1.18. And the reason why is because they play this kind of a game. Behold, we did not know this. And the author says, Paul says, God says, no, you do. You do. God knows you do. And because of that, He's very, very, very angry. He knows that you're taking that knowledge. He, he knows that you know what to do, but you refuse to do it. And you suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. 
The second thing that fools say is something similar to this. Might makes right. Might makes right. In other words, as it relates to Christianity or the church, the bigger the church or more popular the message, the more likely they are the ones speaking the truth. Somebody says, well, how, how, how many people you got in your church? You go out to California and a small church is a thousand people. Well, they've got a thousand people. They, they must be doing something right. And there are a lot of fools out there who think this way, right? And it goes back to that old saying, might makes right. If you want to find where the truth is, you... Uh, you find the biggest crowd. Well, not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 28. He actually addresses this issue. In Matthew 24, verse 28, his disciples have asked him when or what will be the sign of his return. What will be the sign of his return and uh, he says something in the midst of that that uh, addresses uh, this particular issue. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Vultures, lots of birds, right? You, you see them if you've ever been in the woods, and uh, I remember as a young boy and We'd be in the woods somewhere, and you'd see all of these, uh, we call them turkey buzzards, and they would be flying, and there would be tons of them. And we always knew, if that was the case, that something dead was on the ground, somewhere close to where they were circling. And that's Jesus' point. Where you see the crowds, where you see the people circling, that's not where I'm at. That's where the corpse is. That's where the dead people are. That's not the place to go find life. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus knew the human heart. Hence the reason in John 2 he says that, or we're told that he was not entrusting himself to men because he knew what was in their hearts. Isaiah 51 Isaiah 51. Interesting, the, the context here. We don't have time to get into the context, but as part of uh, God giving comfort to his people, uh, he addresses this particular issue. And what that tells us is that this was an issue for them, or at least these were the kinds of things that... Uh, fools in their day were saying how can we be the right ones when we're the only ones if you've ever seen a map and uh, compared the size of Israel to the surrounding nations the first thing that you would notice is that Israel is very 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 small and yet they were the only ones on planet earth with the lights literally on. As far as spiritual things go. And so uh, 
No doubt there were fools among them who said, well, I, I just don't know. Maybe it's all the other nations and the gods that they believe in. Here's what God says to his people or to the righteous. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Go back to the past and reflect and consider. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. Here's the point. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. You know what God's saying there? God's saying size and numbers are not an indication of who has the truth or who is righteous. Size or numbers don't matter. God says, consider, remember where you came from, and he puts it in terms of uh, being dug out of a quarry, uh, that, that were, the, uh, were the rocks that come out of that particular place. He says, consider where you've come from. You've come from Abraham and Sarah, and they were but one, or Abraham was one man. At one point, there was only one man on the entire planet. One man saved. He says, consider you who seek righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Size and numbers are not an indication of who has the truth. Where the corpse is, that's where the crowds are. 75%, and I think I'm being generous in using this particular percentage, 75% of what America has believed about salvation for the past 400 years since uh, the 16th century, actually I guess that should be more like 500 years, which is this, faith in Christ is the only thing necessary for salvation, is diametrically opposed on the opposite end of the spectrum, in other words. Diametrically opposed to what was believed during the prior 3,600 years. So the entire span of creation here for 3,600 years, people believed something to this effect. Baptism expressing faith and faithful obedience. Now, that first piece where I say baptism expressing faith has replaced those old clean laws of circumcision and sacrifice. But again, you still have something very different than this uh, one-stop shop idea to salvation. Faith. And faith alone, which is never taught anywhere in the scripture. Two things instead, something to gain entrance into covenant relationship with God. Under the new covenant, it is baptism expressing faith and faithful obedience, both necessary. Even going back to the inception of the church. So make it uh, 2,000 years or 2,000 minus Minus the last 400, 1,600 years, people believed what I just told you. Baptism expressing faith. Meaning, you have not expressed faith that God will accept unless you've been baptized. Hence the reason Ananias, in relation to Paul, said, Rise and be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Hence the reason, in 1 Peter 3, Peter can say, Baptism now saves you. Well, 
People don't believe that. The majority of churches today don't believe that. They hold to what we call the uh, uh, sola fide gospel, faith alone. Faith, which means you can do it wherever you want, and you can be baptized by whoever you want, and at the end of the day, you don't really even need to be baptized, so uh, that's just a formality after the fact. And after that, if you even choose to do that, because that piece is optional, what you do really doesn't matter as long as you believe. Well, for 3,600, or, or, or to be fair, take it just back to the inception of the church herself. For 1,600 years, nobody believed that. And really now I'm kind of flipping this idea of the majority. If you want to really work off the majority, work off the majority of church history. For 1,600 years, nobody believed what the majority, the vast majority of so-called American Christians believe today. Number three, very much related to the previous point. I dealt with this here just several weeks ago with my friend. God has his people everywhere, right? That's, we, we, as Americans, it's, there's just certain things that we, we can't tolerate, right? It's uh, not having a Starbucks on every corner, right? That's one of them. You travel, you, you know, uh, God forbid, to the Midwest, but you have to go there and uh, you're driving through some of those uh, desolation places and there's no Starbucks. I'm guilty of it. And you're like, scorched earth policy. If it's not bad enough, you're like, they ought to burn the whole thing down. Right? What do you mean there's no Starbucks here? But that's American mentality, right? What we want has to be where we're at. And so we take that same mentality and apply it to the church. God has his people everywhere. There are legitimate churches and Christians in every place in the world. That's what I've called in the past, backpack Jesus. You just go where you want to live and uh, and, uh, Jesus will be there. Said Jesus says in Matthew 12, Where I am, there my servant is also. It's not I follow you, it's we follow him. And he is not in every place. It wasn't true in Jesus' day. And it's not what he identified as saving religion. It was never identified that way. It was never prophesied to eventually be that way. There's nowhere in scripture that says eventually uh, there will be churches everywhere. That was never the case, and it was never prophesied that it would be the case. Luke chapter 13, again, the text, you know it. All of these, I believe, you know or are familiar with. 13.22. He went on his way, speaking of Jesus, through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This guy's already picking up just based on Jesus' earthly ministry that based on what he's preaching, based on what he's requiring, I don't think a lot of people are going to be saved. And so he, he asks Jesus just to make sure that uh, how he's 
putting the pieces together, how he's connecting the dots is uh, correct. Notice Jesus' response, strive, verse 24, agonizomai, from which we get the word agonize from. Agonize to enter through the narrow door, literally the constrictive door, the constrictive way. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many, yes, many people will want to go to heaven. It's like I've said in the past, you go out uh, into the streets and you say, uh, do you want to be rich? I I don't think anybody's going to say no. Or maybe the better way to put it is that you have enough money to cover the things you you want to need in life, to live a comfortable life. Uh, But that's really the wrong question, right? Are you willing to do what it takes to live that way? See, those are two very different questions. And uh, Jesus is uh, making the distinction here for us as it relates to heaven. Many will want to go to heaven. The problem is they will not be willing to do what it takes. And so Jesus uh, tells this particular man, agonizomai, strive to enter through that constrictive way. Understand that it's constrictive and do what it takes, even if you must agonize to do it. For many, again, I tell you, will want to. This is Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, not few, many, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says to those people, I will say, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. You weren't willing to do what I said. You weren't willing to submit to my law. That's why you're not going to heaven. And so uh, the idea that uh, there are people everywhere Where does Jesus ever say that? Where does it say that his churches, rather, his people will be everywhere? Where does he ever say it will ever be that way? Those passages in Matthew 7, where again he says uh, uh, the narrow way leads to life, the the accommodating way that the many are on, that leads to to destruction. Where does he ever say it's going to be anything other than that? Nowhere. Nowhere. Those embracing uh, saving religion, if we look at it from a, a whole Bible or a biblical theological perspective, if we look, look at it over the entire span of redemptive history, those embracing saving religion has always been a very small minority, sometimes referred to uh, as a remnant. Now, um, you can check my math. Uh, I think it's uh, correct here. Uh, but let's just start with Noah. Noah in his day. One family, eight adults, we're not told uh, how many children they had, uh, but, but uh, either way, you have one family. At the time, uh, people uh, estimate that there was probably those that uh, have uh, attempted to do the math on, this, the math on this, that the earth was actually about uh, half, as far as population goes, half of what it is today. So we're running about 8 billion people uh, today on planet Earth. Uh, At the time of Noah, there were 4 billion people on the Earth. And uh, you may find that somewhat shocking, but the the piece to remember is the longevity of life that, uh, that continued up to the days of Noah. So people were living a very, very, very long time and having lots and lots, based on the uh, genealogical genealogical records that we have in Scripture, uh, having lots and lots of children. 
And so 4 billion people on planet Earth, which tells us how many people then died in that global flood. 4 billion people and uh, one family where the spiritual lights are on. If you're having trouble, in other words, uh, grasping this concept that uh, it's always been about a very small, a very small minority or remnant, start with Noah. Here's what it works out to if I've done the math correctly, which is uh, dividing uh, uh, four billion into eight. And it comes up with this as a percentage, 0.000002% of the population. Abraham. So this is after the flood and uh, we have a restart as it relates to uh, people on the earth through the uh, children, the three sons of Noah. And uh, by the time uh, scholars believe you get to Abraham, you have about 2.8 million, so nowhere near what it was in the days of uh, Noah. The number of people that uh, are saved are, again, just one family at this particular point in uh, redemptive history. 25 people, again, doing the math, you're looking at 0.00089%. A little bit better than Noah's day, but still a very, very small fraction of the total population. Moses, by the time you get to Moses, you've got a nation of about 20,000 people. At this point, as scholars believe, there were somewhere around 27 million people. So we've grown from 2.8 to 27. And uh, this is uh, when it gets about the best in uh, redemptive history, at least what we have written down. Uh, that comes out to 0.074%, but still, again, very small. You notice 0 0.0 means we're not even at 1% yet. By the time of Jesus, one church, you add up the numbers in the, uh, the various churches, or the one church there uh, of the apostles at its, uh, uh, at its uh, peak, at that very... Uh, small period of time where there was a, a lot of people coming in, 5,000 people, roughly. And uh, the population of the, uh, the world at that time, 300 million, we're told. And again, the percentage, 0.002%. You see how this is an American problem? This is the American fool's problem, not Scripture's problem. How can there be so few churches? I just don't get that. If there are as many churches as uh, have C-H-U-R-C-H on the door, then we are living in absolutely, very much so, strange times as it relates to the rest of redemptive history. Wouldn't you agree? Unparalleled in human history... In redemptive history, the number of people. We would expect, I would expect to find something then in the pages of scripture that says that there's coming a day when that will be the case. Wouldn't you? I don't know, maybe I'm the fool. There is no place in scripture that ever speaks that way. As a matter of fact, Jesus comes on the scene. We've seen it for ourselves today. The man says, kind of sounds like your program. 
this new covenant program, still about a remnant. Are there only a few people being saved? He's like, nah, it's going to be way different now. Same. Guys, it's always been this way. The problem, or this problem, only a remnant, by the way, is unique to true or saving religion. This is something I think that's uh, worth mentioning, hence the reason I put it here. But if you turn to Jeremiah 2, this is interesting what I think it is, at least, what is uh, said here, God complaining about his people. And, and what he says in the process is something that uh, I think very much relates to this or is helpful because I think the problem that we have is we see a world filled with religion, all kinds of religion, even various forms claiming to be Christian religion, and uh, their people are uh, committed to those religions, right? They're committed, and uh, we say, how is it that uh, we can have so many issues and have to deal with stuff and we can be small and at times feel like we're just limping along and yet you have a whole world where people have been devoted their whole lives and they never have problems and they just seem to continue to grow and, uh, and it's always good. Well, the same was true in Jeremiah's day and uh, again, God uh, says this about it or puts it in a perspective this way. For cross to the coast, verse 10, of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold water. Even God is perplexed by the fact that His people, true religion, is the one place where you'll find people most flaking out. <laughs> Different way of looking at the equation, wouldn't you agree? Again, go up to consider what God says. Cross to the coast of Cyprus. Send to Kedar, these other nations. Examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. A nation changing its gods. What's the point that he's making? They don't do that. And what they believe in, as he says here, even though they are no gods, what they believe is false, and they are more, more committed to what is false than you are to what is legitimately true and saving. Be appalled. Be shocked, God says. And yet this too has always been true. And so, should we be looking at those things as the means to determine where truth is? I think the bigger question is why? Why is that the case that uh, where you have legitimate religion, you'll, you'll actually find more problems? I think it's very easy. A true God equals moral change. False God requires no such change. And moral change equals enemy to self. 
And the one thing that we all love far too much is self. That's why I like American Christianity. What's under the tree for me? Oh, baby Jesus, I like singing about him, but (laughs) it's about me today. True God, moral change. Moral change, enemy to self. False religion is easy to stick with. You know, there would be few, if any, atheists if the only thing God required was that you knew that he was, uh, was giving you good things all the time and didn't require anything in return. It's the moral change aspect. It's the submission. It's the death to self stuff that we have a problem with. Now, making sense of all of this, and I've just scribbled some notes here because uh, I was thinking about this a little bit more. I don't know if this will help, but uh, in my mind at least, the question popped up. How do we make sense of all of this? I even heard Aaron Rodgers not too long ago say something to the effect of, how can I believe in a God when there's so much suffering? Why would he allow it to go on if there's only going to be a few? Well, first of all, it tells us something about what he thinks about the few. And I'm sure glad he kept it going so I could be one of those few. But let me just share with you two other things. Here's the first. We created the problem. We will see it through to the end. This isn't God's problem. It's ours. We're the ones that decided to rebel from him. Remember, he gave us paradise. Literally, that's what the term Eden means. He gave that to our first parents, and we did this. God says, you know what? You created the problem. You'll see it to the end. You're the reason that you have cancer, and you'll see it to the end. What's the end? Well, Revelation 20 says there's a point at which the world and Satan will eventually surround the faithful, what's left of the faithful, in an attempt to completely snuff them out. I've called it the extinction event. And only at that point will Jesus finally come back, which means we will see our own destruction to the end. And why again should he help? He didn't create the problem, and get this, why should he help people who are still doing this? As a matter of fact, they they now know they have two hands to do it with. Would you? Would you? God says, you you created the problem, You'll, you'll see it to the end, which means this. More people will know that God is just and they will know him as merciful. Does anyone have any problem with that? I don't even think the people in the world would ultimately have a problem with that if they understood it that way. As a matter of fact, the foundation of God's throne, according to Psalm 89, is justice. And at the end of the day, more people will absolutely be in hell than they will be in heaven, which means that the one thing that will reign true about God more than anything else is that he is a just God. Because they will get, as we saw in Psalm 24, and as we see over and over and over through the pages of Scripture, God will give, he will repay every man according to their work. He will give them what they deserve. And is that not justice? You've done this to me, you'll get what you deserve. 
Mercy is something that none of us have an obligation to. As a matter of fact, that, that is by definition mercy. It's me extending myself in kindness to someone that I have no obligation to in that way. And at the end of the day, God will, what will reign true about God is that he is indeed just by the fact that hell will be filled to the brink with people getting just that. Justice. People who were not willing, by the way, to serve justice now because that's the beautiful, wonderful, merciful, good news truth that we're given through Jesus. Turn and be just now. Turn and do right by God. Turn like Jesus says and uh, argue your case before you get to the magistrate. Do right. Make the right intellectual and moral choice to do right. Do justice now and you won't face it later. And God is so incredibly merciful to give us that choice because we don't deserve it. Justice does not demand that he give it, and yet he has. Number four, devotion trumps doctrine. Devotion trumps doctrine. What I mean by that is this, even if what people believe is wrong, and this is something that is also popular today and you'll hear out of the mouth of fools, even if what people believe is wrong. Because remember, we, we can't really get the Bible right. And, uh, you know, we can't, it just seems fa- unfair to judge people for getting what they believe or, or, or damning them because what they believe is wrong. And so God will still accept them and they'll still go to heaven as long as they are sincerely devoted to what they believe, never mind that what they believe is wrong. As long as you're devoted to it, as long as you sincerely believe what you believe, as long as your heart is in the right place, that's all that God really cares about. He doesn't care that you don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't care that what you believe, that the God, that the Jesus you believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible, is not the Jesus who created heaven and earth. It's the Jesus you believe in, and as long as you believe in him and you're devoted to what you believe about him, that's okay. Devotion trumps doctrine. Well, according to Scripture, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to kill, literally to slaughter, thousands upon thousands of people who were very sincere and devoted to their false religions. This is what God told them and warned them that they were to do if they were to remain in covenant relationship with him. They were to go in and they were to slaughter the people in whose land they would now occupy. They were to remove them from the land through death. Exodus 23 verse 13, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of their of the name of their gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Uh, Skipping down then uh, to verse uh, 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, that 
Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Prezites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, I kill all of them. These are the people living in the land that would later become Israel. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Overthrow them. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will, however, drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. And the same is uh, repeated in Deuteronomy 7. Thousands upon thousands of people. This is what is uh, sometimes referred to as racial or ethnic genocide. In this case, commanded by God himself. I will utterly blot them out. That means there will no longer be anyone of their race or people left. And I will do it, God says, through your hands. And the reason I will do it is because they serve false gods. They are devoted to false gods. Sincerely devoted to their false gods. Does this sound like a God who says devotion trumps doctrine to you? A God who says, oh, at the end of the day, you know, it's just, as long as you were sincere, even though you got it totally wrong, I mean, it's okay. You remember the story with Elijah on Mount Carmel uh, with the uh, 450 prophets of Baal, and uh, at the end of that whole uh, thing, uh, what does he do? He slaughters all 450 prophets of Baal. Because this is what God commands to do with such people. So what does that tell us about devotion to the wrong things? Well, I think it tells us that uh, God is no respecter of persons in that way. Either get it right, either get it right, and be devoted to what is right, or go to hell. The same is true even today. God prohibits fellowship. Association is one thing, but fellowship... According to 2 Corinthians 6, God prohibits fellowship with such people as a prerequisite to salvation. He says, come out from them and, 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 and be separate from them, and I will be God to you. I will save you if you do that. If you don't, no. If you welcome them, if you let them into your home, then you share in their wicked deeds, 2 John 1, 9 through 11. God cares both about doctrine and Devotion. And so this is how we answer the fool according to what his folly deserves. The fool who says, oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe. God killed a lot of people who were very, very sincere, wiped out their entire race 
because they believed and were devoted to the wrong things. The final piece, happy Jesus, horrible Satan. Happy Jesus, horrible Satan. By the way, Merry Christmas. Welcome to the God of the Bible, the one who created heaven and earth. If you don't like him, that's on you, not him. Horrible G or happy Jesus, horrible Satan. What am I getting in here? Well, people who believe that, and here I'm now speaking to fools, uh, even in our own congregation, possibly. Uh, people, fools who believe that the people in this world, those who are following Satan, which is not a subset of those who in the world, you are either following God, true God of heaven and earth, or you are following Satan. According to 1 John 5.19, that is the case. That is the distinction. You are either a child of the devil or you are a child of God. Well, this uh, foolish thinking thinks this, that those people are secretly miserable people, that only Christians, those following Jesus, have happy, fulfilling lives. Some of the kids I've heard think this. Parents, you've somehow not been teaching your kids what you should in relation to this, and it uh, may be coming across this way. Oh, if you do that, you're going to be miserable. Because people in the world, even though they may smile, even though they may look like they have good lives, they're secretly miserable, and uh, that's what we know to be true. That's folly. Even according to what the Bible teaches about people in the world. Many people in the world are living very happy and fulfilling lives. They are. They're truly happy people. In their spiritual darkness, they are truly happy people. In their suppression of the truth, they are truly happy people. Happy people. And again, the Bible bears witness to this. Psalm 17, two texts. Psalm 17 Verse 15, here in this particular psalm, the psalmist says something about the people of this world. He says this, speaking of evil, wicked men, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Verse 13, from men by your hand. What kind of men? Wicked. So the people of the world, the men of the world whose portion is in this life. Whose portion, what does he mean? It's, their joy, their happiness is in this life. Most specifically, you fill their womb with treasure. Uh, literally, you stuff the bellies of the wicked. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. They have incredibly fulfilling lives and children and all of these wonderful, joyful things. And he says here, you fill their womb with such treasures. What kind of people? Wicked people. Psalm 73, it's uh, understanding this or observing the world and seeing the happiness that abounds in the world among the wicked almost caused the psalmist uh, that writes Psalm 73 to uh, stumble. To stumble. He says this, looking at that uh, text, verses 1 through 12, verses 1 through 12 of that text. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. 
My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Which, by the way, for you young people, or maybe even some of you adults who had this foolish thought that somehow they're secretly miserable, when you find out that that's not the case, you're going to end up in the same place. My feet almost stumbled. You're going to become envious because what you thought was uh, the distinction here, why it is that uh, we serve God is because that's the only happy place on earth. And you're going to realize they're happy too. They're prosperous. I saw the prosperity of the wicked and it caused me almost to fall away from God. That's what he means when he says, my feet almost stumbled. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. All of this talk of fatness just means they have an abundance of food. That's what he's saying. They're rich. They scoff and speak with malice. They're wicked people, and yet they have all these wonderful things loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut through earth. And so he's making it very clear. These are not righteous people. They're, they're not living these kinds of lives because they're righteous people. They're just the opposite. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, they're getting away with this. And even the righteous see it. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. And so the psalmist is now telling us, if I would have talked that way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But what's the point again? Well, the Bible bears witness to uh, the people of the world being very happy, prosperous, which means our reason for, beloved, following God is not because this is the only way to have happy and fulfilling lives in the present. If you you think that, you've been sorely mistaken, that this is the only way to have that. As a matter of fact, living for God will often lead to great sacrifice and suffering. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Again, it's a promise. Living for God will often lead to great sacrifice and suffering. So why do we follow God? Well, for two reasons then. We follow God realizing that we will, what we will gain for our sacrifice and suffering now, what we will gain for our sacrifice and suffering now is two things. The first is escape from eternal hell, which is where the psalmist goes here. Uh, he, he realizes this. When he goes into God's house, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And uh, the reason uh, he mentions the sanctuary or God's house is because that's where the scrolls were. That's where God's word was found. And so he goes in there and he says, I learned their end. Here it is. Truly, you, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin 
How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The psalmist realizes that and says, when my soul was embittered this way, when I was envious of them, when I was pricked in heart, I realized I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast, an animal before you, a non-thinking creature. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. Notice what he says there, unfaithful to you. You put them to an end. What is that end? Well, the New Testament tells us quite a bit about what that end is for those who are unfaithful to God. Matthew chapter 13, we won't look at all of these texts, but Matthew 13 is one such text that's worth considering. Here Jesus is speaking about this very thing in his parable of the weeds. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into a house and his disciples came to him. And here now is rather the explanation of that parable. Explain to us the parable of the the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest in this parable is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Here it is, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Into the fiery furnace. Why are they weeping and gnashing their teeth? Because of the pain in that place. Revelation 21, or 20 rather, the end of Revelation 20 calls that the lake of fire. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says it is the place where the worm does not die. They will continue to burn there. They will not be burned up, in other words. In a place of utter darkness, though they burn. Hell. And so, what do we gain from our sacrifice? There's something that God is asking of us in this life. It's very true. To die to self, that is a sacrifice. To suffer for righteousness, that happens if you're living the Christian life. You will suffer and be persecuted. Again, it's a promise. If you are living and being faithful the way that Jesus calls you to be. So what do we gain from that? From those two things? Being asked to sacrifice and to suffer. Well, uh, the first thing is, is we escape eternal hell. But the second, the positive is this. Uh, we gain eternal life in the universe reboot. We've talked about this. This world, this galaxy, not a dead galaxy with uh, floating rocks in space, but a very living galaxy, other planets to inhabit. God created this first universe in that way, in the hopes of us populating and terraforming those places. We're told that in Isaiah. And out of his mercy, for those who have been faithful, though they be few, for those few, those, as Jesus says, who are worthy, he will give us that reboot in the resurrection. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about that. Isaiah 65 speaks to that. And here's the really cool thing about that place that we're going. Not only is it a place where we will never experience death, it is a place where we will never, ever again be asked to sacrifice 
or suffer. And I think that's a pretty good deal. He says, hey, prove your mettle here. Show that you're worthy to go there. Show your commitment to me now. Be willing to suffer for me, to give up things for me, to be where I'm at, to sacrifice for me. And I promise you a place where you'll never be asked for those things again. It's the fool who doesn't take that deal. Closing contemplation then. Second Thessalonians. One final thought. Second Thessalonians. And uh, we'll start in verse 5 and read through 10. I have 11 here, but we'll read through 10. The Thessalonians were people who were suffering affliction, persecution. They had made sacrifices to follow Jesus. And uh, Paul wants to put all of that into perspective for them and to encourage them. And so he does so with these words. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy. Here it is, see? Considered worthy. How are you considered worthy? By willing by being willing to suffer. And how do you suffer? Because you're faithful, because you stand against the darkness, because you're bold. That creates the suffering, the sacrifice. He says, this is evidence of the righteousness of judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So here's some of the relief. They're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get what they've done to you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, you'll never be again asked to suffer or to sacrifice. Instead, you'll be granted relief, those of you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus, and here's what that day will be like, beloved, on that day when he returns. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, the faithful. And to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Here's the contemplation. Here's the thing to think about Our bear Jew king, and if you don't know what bear Jew is, you look it up. Our bear Jew king will soon return. And when he does, his sword or bat will bear the blood and names of all those fools who thought they knew better than God and so spoke against him, his people, or his gospel. Don't be among the fools. Let's pray. Father, thank you that We've had the opportunity to talk about things most important, gospel things. Those are the things most important. And I pray that by doing so that your people have not only been edified, but equipped to go and to 
to answer the fools of this world according to what their folly deserves that some of those who have been fools might turn and become your people. Oh, Lord, make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.